Will you join me in prayer? Almighty Father, our Heavenly Father, we, we lift you up as our creator, as our sustainer, the one who has all life in his hands. We're so grateful that we can worship you and honor you. In spirit and in truth, we're so grateful that you have shown us the way. We are also so blessed that you pour out your blessings on us and we honor you this Sabbath day as a day of rest and a day of focus on you for we know that each of these times that we worship you, we learn and we grow. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, that you'll pour out your understanding on our hearts this day and that you will be with us as we each day, each week, honor you and worship you in all that we do. This prayer and petition we ask in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Well, you know, most who celebrate the birth of our Savior, December 25, don't really know what the scriptures teach about him. Truth to tell, looking at the scriptures, they hardly know him at all. There is a book titled The Greatest Story Never Told. Many of the traditions of our Savior and his birth are fantasy with no support at all in the word from the December 25th date originating with the Roman Saturnalia to the supposed three wise men who came not to a manger but to a house two years later to the three kinds of gifts they gave, which were gifts to a king, not birthday presents. These are small things in comparison to other misunderstandings about our Savior. And you know, we can lay the responsibility for these errors on those who are ordained to teach the word. And instead, millions are ignorant of the word. And this applies to many aspects of the true walk. You know, our aim is to reveal the biblical facts about Yahweh, his son, and the plan of salvation that can be ours if we conform to his word. From his day of birth, to what Yahshua looked like, to his name given by an angel, to facts about his family on earth and the heavens, to why he came to the earth, what was his purpose, and what his message was, and what the master plan is for eternity. That's a lot not to know about the central figure in today's worship. We'll start with the basics. First, his name. He was not known or called by the Latinized Greek name that's popular today, but a Hebrew name, Yahshua, because he was Hebrew. You wouldn't name your child, as an American, you wouldn't name your child a Greek name or a Latin name, even if the language wasn't dead. And he was named by the culture in which he lived, in the culture in which he lived. But there's a lot more to Hebrew than that. That's another story. But he was Hebrew, and he would proclaim his father's salvation, which is intrinsic in his name, Yah's salvation, Yahshua, Yahushua. That's what it means. All Hebrew names in the Bible mean something. Problem is, J-E-S-U-S doesn't etymologically mean anything. It's a make-up word. 
The letter J is an anachronism. It didn't exist in any alphabet on earth until the time of Christopher Columbus. How could that be his name? When he lived and walked this earth 1,400 years earlier. He didn't have the long blondish hair or blue eyes and thin nose of a Nordic European, as we normally see him depicted as, because again, he was Hebrew. What do Hebrews look like? They have dark hair, darker skin, maybe curly hair. They didn't have blondish hair, typically. Neither did he have a halo hovering over his head. That comes from sun worship, S-U-N worship, in a tradition that came along later. He was an ordinary-looking Hebrew Israelite with dark features, probably shorter, not real tall, but an average-looking guy. He wasn't some handsome movie star figure. Isaiah 53, 2 prophesies, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was an average guy, just a plain old average guy, plain old Hebrew. He didn't come to earth to satisfy personal vanity. He could have looked like anybody, but that wasn't his purpose. He came to preach and teach Yahweh's word, his father's word. His appearance in that respect was irrelevant. We recall that when Judas betrayed Joshua, he had to kiss him, Matthew 26, 48, to point him out to the authorities who he was. Because in the, in the crowd there, they wouldn't know he looked like everybody else. Now, he certainly wouldn't look that way if he had <laughs> depicted as we see today in pictures. And by the way, we're not to make any images of him anyway. But uh, when the authorities were after him to take his life, do you remember? He could pass through the crowds and get away and, because he didn't look any different than everybody else. He looked like any other Jew. Many people don't realize that Yahshua had brothers and sisters. Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us, says Matthew 13, 55 to 56? So Mary didn't remain a virgin very long, did she, after she had Yahshua? Notice that Yahshua is typically depicted as either a baby in a manger or nailed up on a cross. Either way, he's helpless. Either way, he can't do anything. Why? Why do they depict him that way? Why? He was robust. He was vital from the work he did. He was a builder. The Bible says carpenter is probably, probably carpenter and stone because those structures over there in Israel had, had uh, woodwork, you know, beams and so forth within them, but they're basically framed in stone. So he's probably a stonemason and a carpenter. We don't know, but, uh, you know, that, that takes a lot of work, <laughs> lifting up rocks and putting them in place and all that, chopping you know, wood. Anyway, he was, uh, he was not some wimpy little, uh, little guy that he's commonly depicted as. In fact, uh, one day he's going to take over the planet's governments and the elimination of his adversaries. He's a no-nonsense savior. When he taught us to obey his father, he meant it. He couldn't invoke Yahshua's forgiveness or Yahweh's forgiveness, if you 
don't obey him. If you don't obey his commandments, how could you say he is my savior? Because there's no, nothing to save from, which we'll get on into a little later. He was in it all the way. He did it all that his father had asked of him. There was no vacillating, as is common to man today. Man makes a commitment, then he backs out of it. Yahshua was in it all for all the marbles, so to speak. And because he was the very son of Yahweh, it still was not an easy thing that he had to do. Giving up his life for us, for our sins. He had the weight of the world on his shoulders. We can hardly imagine the physical abuse he took. If you saw that movie, Temptation of Christ, it was it's terrible what he had to go through. And it's probably a lot worse than it was depicted there because those are actors, you know, but um, it's amazing. But do we ever consider his emotional impact? What he had to do inside himself, thinking about his coming abuse. One example, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke twenty-two fourteen 14, or 44. Now, it could have been sweat. You know, that, that's, that's pretty extreme too, to be in such anguish that you're sweating big drops of blood, uh, big drops of, of, of uh, sweat. But it also could have been blood. That is possible. The clinical name for this condition is hematidrosis from the Greek hema and hematos, meaning blood, and hydros, meaning sweat. A 2009 journal on dermatology described the condition this way. Severe mental anxiety activates the sympathetic nervous system to invoke the stress-fighting or flight reaction to such a degree as to cause hemorrhage of the blood vessels supplying the sweat glands and the ducts of the sweat glands. So you actually would sweat, sweat and blood. It's possible. Can you imagine the extreme anguish that that would bring, cause to be? Well, he was a Hebrew in every aspect. As uh, Shai Conan, professor of Judaic and religious studies at Brown University says, of course, J-E-S-U-S, was a Jew. He was born of a Jewish mother in Galilee, a Jewish part of the world. All of his friends and associates and colleagues, disciples, were Jews. He regularly worshipped in a Jewish communal worship, what we call synagogues. He preached from Jewish, a Jewish text from the Bible, we, of course the Hebrew. He celebrated the Jewish festivals. He went on a pilgrimage to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem where he was under the authority of priests. He was born, lived, died as a Jew. Of course, we know that they aren't just Jewish festivals, but they're Hebrew. But they kept them. Why aren't they being kept today? In mass, all over the place. He kept them. We're confronted with the fact that he is a Jewish savior, a Hebrew savior, and to call him a Christian is an acronym because Christian Christianity didn't come along until after he was resurrected. We're confronted with the fact that John 1.3 boldly says of Yahshua, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
So here he is. Yahshua is called the Word in John 1. In Hebrews 11.3, we read, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of Elohim. He's called the Word. In the Old Testament, he's the Debar. Debar, which means Word. He was a spokesman for Yahweh. He acted for Yahweh in the Old Testament and, of course, in the New. In Hebrews 11.3, we read, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of Elohim, so that things which were seen were not made of things which do appear. Yahshua was clearly the one in Genesis who did the creating, including our earth as well as the universe. Paul states that he created both visible and invisible things, including the spirit realm. Colossians 1, 16 says, For by him were all things created, and that are in heaven, and that are in earth, visible and invisible. He did spiritual creation too. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities and powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. He he existed before all that creating. And by him all things consist. How do they consist? What holds this universe together? What holds this world together? I believe it's the power of the Spirit. We don't know what gravity is. We can't take hold of it. We just know how it acts. We really don't know what fire is or electricity. What, what in its essence is it? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a force. But what is it? Well, if you look at this universe and you look at Material things, they're, they're uh, in their essence, atoms, molecules, and those things. What's holding them together? What, what valence forces, as they say in chemistry and physics, are holding it together? Why do they have force? Why does magnetism have force that holds, you know, can grab hold of things? Why? It's got to be Yahweh's spirit holding everything together. It's the only thing I can, I can imagine could do all of this. And it says, by him, by Yahshua, all things consist. So he somehow implanted the spirit into everything to hold it together. He is the very image of Yahweh, the firstborn of all creation, we read in uh, verse 15 of Colossians 1. The very image of Yahweh, the firstborn of all creation. Not only did Yahweh give the task of creating to his son, but He also was the one who guided Israel, the wilderness. When they went through, left Egypt, went through all those different scenarios, the the troubles that they had and the miracles that they saw. That was him guiding them. In Exodus 7.2 and Numbers 21.5, we're said to have tempted Yahweh. We learn in 1 Corinthians 10.9 that the one they tempted was the Messiah, the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Neither let us tempt tempt Messiah as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. This is a reference to Numbers 21, 6. Remember the snakes attacked them because of the uh, misbehavior, their their griping and so forth? So Yahweh gave them a plague of snakes. So to get rid of them, Moses was told to make a, a snake, put it around a post. And then when they look at it, they would... uh, they would be free of the, the bites and whatever they had. Many think Yahshua will return to earth with love and pats on the hands of billions of people. 
Is that what it's going to be about? They say, my Savior would never do anything mean. I mean, that's how far people have gotten away from the truth because they don't know their word. Malachi 3 and many other passages say otherwise, that he's coming with a double-edged sword to fight, to fight the rebellious nations. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the sovereign whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. A messenger of the covenant would be someone of the word, right? Be Yahshua. Behold, you shall come, says Yahweh of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? Oh, it's not going to be so so, uh, friendly. It's not going to be so easy and nice. He says, who can abide it? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He's going to cleanse. He's going to cleanse and burn and cleanse. And he shall sit a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. That's what he wants, an offering of righteousness by our lives to live righteous. Revelation 19:13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of Yahweh. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen. He's going to come back with armies of angels. And the power that he would have, it's it's just out of out of mind. You can't even imagine how he's going to come back to this earth. clothed in white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Man's domain is going to be finished. The evil, the sin of this world is going to be dealt with ultimately, finally. Thousands of years of man's rule and the problems, the trials, the agony, all of that that come with sin are going to be a thing of the past. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the wide, treads the wide press of his fearness of his wrath of El Shaddai. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. Now, some say that should be banner. It's a mix-up of the, of the Hebrew to say it's on his thigh, but it's on his banner, apparently. King of kings and sovereign of sovereigns. He's going to be the one taking over Everything. Then there is Zechariah 14.3. Then shall Yahweh go forth and fight against those nations and as when he fought in the day of battle. Again, this is the Yahshua fighting as a representative of Yahweh. And there are many references in the Hebrew Old Testament using the name Yahweh that our Savior answers to. So we're brought to an understanding of the Heavenly Father and the revelation of all the things that he's going to do with Yahshua. He it is who reveals the invisible father, the express image of his person. Yahshua not only appears like the heavenly father, but he's also like-minded. He thinks like Yahweh. He has the goals of Yahweh. He has the character of Yahweh. All of that. A granite statue and a wax statue of George Washington would look just like the father of our country, just in a different, different form. And that's what, uh, what he is as he reflects Yahweh, the exact image. They are alike. They have the same mind, the same attitudes. He and my father are one. Does it mean they're one person? 
doesn't mean we're talking about a ventriloquist here. They are alike in mind and goal. That's what it means. They are one. Same mind, same aspirations. Now the Son has returned in glory to the spirit realm to be at the Father's right hand. The Savior himself claimed that he pre-existed before he came to earth at Bethlehem as a human baby. He told those he had fed for the bread of Elohim is he which comes down from heaven. He's the bread of life. Talking about himself. He came down from heaven and gives life to the world. John 6.33. Verse 38 tells us, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of my Father, the one who sent me. So the question arises, how did our Redeemer, that mighty spirit being that created this awesome universe with such power, how did he become a babe born in Bethlehem? How could such a being be compressed to fit in the womb of Mary, Miriam? This is one of the miracles of Yahweh so that Yahshua could take on human condition. It was necessary that our Savior become as a man so he could be the judge. He would have lived through this life and he would be a righteous judge knowing what we go through. He'll have gone through it too. He'll be totally qualified to judge us. It was necessary that he become a man to act as the faithful high priest. He's going to be the high priest. Hebrews 5.8 declares he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Just like we have to do. You know, when Miriam is promised to have a son, she asks how that can be when she does not even know a man. How is that going to work? The angel tells her that this will be accomplished in a supernatural way. The power of the Holy Spirit shall come upon Miriam. Power of the Holy Spirit. Imagine being Miriam and being told that. That you're going to have a, a dynamic power within you from the heavens. The power of the Holy Spirit. That holy thing, the angel said, which shall be born of you, shall be called the son of Elohim. Note that the angel does not say that Miriam shall meet a man or that a, a babe shall be flesh of her flesh or bone of her bone. The angel simply says it's a holy thing, Luke one thirty five, And through the power of Yahweh's spirit, it was possible to slow down Yahshua's spirit energy to become physical substance, material substance. His body would not have to be from another source, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yasha could be made a, a minute embryo to be placed in the womb of Miriam. And this is a, a, itself an amazing miracle. Maybe, maybe the most amazing miracle in the Bible. Taking the powerful, awesome being, the creator of the universe, and put it into a little embryo he can barely see to become our creator on earth, our savior on earth. In reverse of this miraculous process, Yahweh says he will change physical beings into spiritual beings. He did it the other way around with Yahshua. We will make them spiritual beings. I had a man once say, well, we're talking about Satan. He says, uh, well, you say Satan's going to be destroyed. Well, how can he be destroyed? He's spirit. <laughs> if Yahweh created spirit, he can destroy it, right? He can take spirit 
and bring it physical. He can take physical things and make them spirit. That's, that's not an issue. That's not a problem with him. That's, that's uh, probably for him, that's nothing. But he will make physical bodies into spirit at the last trumpet sound when Yahshua returns. The spirit that was in us will be raised like a magnet being pulled to, as he gathers, he said, he gathers his elect from around the world. With Yahweh, nothing's impossible. It was the reversing of the uh, resurrection process of 1 Corinthians 15.51 to go from physical to spirit. Yahshua had to lay aside his spiritual glory, become physical, and Yahweh prepared him a physical body. It was Yahweh who did it, made, made the body for him on this earth so he could have uh, a representative of, of human representative here on earth. 2 Peter 1.10 says that we must change and grow spiritually to enter the kingdom. We can't, you know, the old song, Just As I Am Without One Plea. You always heard uh, the one evangelist sing that at his altar calls. Yahweh doesn't want you just as you are. He wants you to change. He calls you where you are, but then he wants you to change and not just be just as I am. To grow, to enter into the kingdom. First, Second Peter 1.10 tells us that. Yahshua showed the way to salvation. He taught a coming kingdom on earth. And we're given a way to be granted a role in that kingdom. He's showing us how we can do it. And that's basically the reason we're here today. So that we can learn about that kingdom one day to be of service in that kingdom as a kingdom of priests. That's why we're here. So that's part of, uh, to become part of his kingdom, we have to become converted. We have to be changed. And that's part and parcel of baptism. A denomination down the road once did a survey and discovered that half his congregation thought baptism was unnecessary. Clearly, they were unstudied in the scriptural teachings of immersion. Had they understood that baptism is key to salvation, they likely would have taken it more seriously and thought differently about it. In a simple and direct statement, the Apostle Peter declared, baptism now saves us, 1 Peter 3.21. Save here, what he meant by being saved, is to deliver from the penalties of the messianic judgment to come, and to save from the evils that keep the unconverted from Yahshua's deliverance from sin. So we have to overcome the evils of this world, the sin of this world. That's the message that we must teach and not say, well, you don't need obedience. That's, we, we're, uh, we're saved by grace. Yeah, you're saved by grace, but... Who is saved by grace? Those that he finds worthy are saved by grace. Simply put, our sins have earned penalties that must be dealt with. They must be eliminated. If they remain, they're a roadblock to salvation. If our sins are not washed away, they'll block our path to salvation. In baptism, you're dealing with the seriousness of sin. That's what it's all about, to wash that sin away. 
and come out a new person. A new person with different goals, a different direction in life. To live for Yahweh and not for self. To live for Yahweh and not for the world. If you can bank on that fact that sin destroys lives, don't let it in. Don't even give it a chance. If Yahweh says behavior like that is wrong, it's wrong. Sinful behavior, doing unlawful things, transgressing the law as he defines it, it works like a it works kind of like a virus. Like a virus. You can't see it, but it enters. And then once it's done doing its dirty work, you get sick. You get sick. A virus is so small, so unnoticeable at first, but ultimately it takes over. You know, we look at King David and wonder how he could have strayed so far away from Yahweh by the sin that he did. How could he have done that? But you know, David already breached Yahweh's commandment concerning a king, which said, neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turn not away. Deuteronomy 17, 17. David had eight wives. Eight wives. What did it just say? Don't multiply wives to yourselves. 2 Samuel 5, 13 says, he came to Jerusalem and he took more wives and concubines, at least 10 concubines, although these he had really no relations of relations with, but why did he take them? So having started down a slippery slope, it was easier for him to continue the momentum. Oh, there's another one I can get. Bathsheba. The lesson is that our sinful ways start small, maybe even unnoticeable. It's one of the biggest hindrances we face is our own natures. We've got to overcome that nature, and it's not easy. takes a lifetime. Solomon was the matchless example of failing this mandate about don't multiply wives as a king. He is, the, uh, he is exhibit A. Um, and what did it do to him? His downfall. That was his downfall. Took a thousand wives and concubines and uh, started listening to them instead of Yahweh. The first thing you have to do when you're confused on what to do about practicing or teaching the word is to check what Yahshua said and did. That's something you don't hear today. Live as he did. Do what he did, like keeping the Sabbath, like keeping the feast days, like going out and and healing and always working for others, helping them with their problems. That's what we're supposed to be doing. The first thing to do when you're confused on what to do, just open the word and what did Joshua do? What did he say about this situation? When it comes to immersion, what did Joshua teach and what did he himself do? Well, he got immersed, right? He learned that John the Baptist was down the way in the River Jordan and uh, so he, he heads that way. He heads that way. Because he wanted to get immersed as well. If we can get it right with him, our coming judge, then we've got nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. His plain statement about baptism was, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. Who believes 
and that entails everything about the walk, and then is baptized. Someone, the popular teaching is, well, baptism is just an outward confession, an outward show of an inner change. It's more than that. It's a lot more than that. It says, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're not born of baptismal waters, you can't enter the kingdom. That's pretty serious. Because it's more than just going underwater. There's more to it than that. Acts 2, when Peter was explaining to the people, you just killed Yahshua the Messiah, they just said, well, what can we do now? That's the worst thing ever we could ever do. What can we do now? And he says, repent. Repent of your sin. And then be baptized. It's a two-step process. Two-step. And that church down the way, said, half of them say, oh, you don't need baptism. They're not even considering the fact that repentance is first and then baptism. He's talking about the waters of immersion, imparting the gift of the Spirit by the laying out of hands, following baptism. Why was he so emphatic about the importance of baptism? He mentions two aspects, water and spirit. Water and spirit. He includes the spirit, which is imparted after baptism, as it was given to Yahshua the Messiah. Remember, he got, came up out of the water, a dove came down like the spirit, and then he was taken up into the mountain to be tested three times by the old adversary. He overcome every, overcame every one of those temptations, but Satan hit him, hit him at his weakest point. Having fasted for, what, 40 days, I mean, he was hungry, so he, oh, make those stones bread. Luscious, very smooth and very uh, uh, fragrant. You ever had fresh bread right out of the oven? <laughs> I can't stop with one loaf. I mean, it just goes on. Why would he do that? Because Yasha was hungry. He knew what Yasha's goal was, to be king. So he says, you can sidestep the, you know, what you got to go through. You can, you can go around that, do an end run around it. Just bow down before me. You've got, see the kingdoms out there? It can be yours. Why go through all the trouble? Why go through all the agony? Those can be yours. And just to play on his vanity, if he had any, throw yourself down from the pinnacle here of this temple and your angels will lift you up and you can be, wow, wow, look at him. Look at that. Everybody would just be amazed. See, that's what turns Satan on. Aggrandizement, personal glory. That's what he likes. Yasha wasn't interested in any of those and he answered everyone from the scriptures. It is written, it is written, it is written. If you ever have a problem with somebody, go to the scriptures, answer them with the scriptures. They can't, I mean, what, what can they do? How can they argue book, chapter, and verse? What they'll do is they'll say, oh, but look over here. You know, ignore that part. Look over here. No, answer me this, please. And uh, then they'll probably get mad and just walk away. Anyway, hopefully they don't. Hopefully you can get to them by the word. So he has the spirit. And then after he was baptized, and it proved that this was of Yahweh. So baptism involves these elements. It follows repentance from sins. It involves a voluntary free will decision that you want to change your life. 
Turn it around. Go a different. Go a 180. And live your life as Yahshua, your coming king, did. That's a pretty tall order for most people. They, that's, you know, that's why there's only few who will turn to him. Many are called, but it's too hard. So few are chosen. But it's for all the marbles. I mean, we only have one shot at this thing called salvation. What are we going to do? Are we going to change our lives? Receiving of the Holy Spirit is a third by the laying out of hands of the ministry. 1 Timothy 4.14, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given you by prophecy with the laying out of hands of the presbytery, the ministry. That's just Greek for ministry. So our Savior's example is for us. His own immersion in Matthew 3.13. Then comes Yahshua from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. He travels to the river Jordan where John the Baptist is busy immersing. Now, he was sinless. Why did he do that? He had no sin to, to take care of, to, to uh, get atoned for. He, did, he was perfect. He didn't sin once in his life. He didn't even sin by his thoughts. Can you imagine? You ever been sitting there and all of a sudden a weird thought comes across your mind? Like, Where did that come from? That's the adversary working, trying to get you aimed a different direction, perhaps. But he didn't even have that. He was sinless. So the washing away of sins wasn't the purpose. What was it? Why did he do it? He said he did it to fulfill all righteousness. To have a complete life ready for to be uh, raised incorruptible. To fulfill all righteousness. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.